In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. This month on Notably Disney, we will feature several episodes where I am joined by Aaron Wallace, a podcaster best known for the Zippity-Doo Pod podcast that's now under the name On Main Street. He's also the author of many treasured books in the Disney fan community, including Hocus Pocus and Focus, The Thinking Fan's Guide to Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom 2020, that's a new release, an updated version of previous editions, and The Thinking Fan's Guide to Walt Disney World, Epcot. And it is Epcot that will encompass much of our forthcoming discussions under the umbrella of the Epcot Essentials series here on Notably Disney. On this episode, in honor of Epcot's 37th anniversary and truly the dawn of a new era for the park, we discuss the music of Epcot past and present, covering many of the pavilion's really memorable tunes, and we're just going to dive right into that conversation. Aaron, it is so wonderful to have you on Notably Disney. Thanks for coming on to discuss Epcot Essentials. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk about this with you and just to be on the show because uh, I mentioned before I've been listening uh, to Notably Disney and have just been enjoying it so much and I'm so glad that you've added your voice to the Disney potosphere, as it were, because uh, I think that um, you and your guests have really been bringing some valuable um, discussions and contributions. So I really appreciate it and I'm thrilled to be a part of it now. Well, thanks for that, Aaron. And yeah, now I think I'm going to have to adopt the term potosphere because that's just yeah. <laughs> a great term. So we are commemorating the 37th anniversary of Epcot, which is the dawn of a new era with a lot of monumental changes coming to the park over the coming years. And in this first episode in which we are discussing Epcot Essentials, we are going to be examining a lot of the music that is representative of the park's evolution over these past nearly four decades. So speaking to someone who knows Epcot very well as the author of The Thinking Fan's Guide to Walt Disney World, Epcot, and just a park fan yourself, when, when you think of 
Epcot as just a general term, what comes to mind? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's honestly, it's kind of a, a loaded question. I feel like you could put that to any number of Disney fans and get any number of answers in response. Uh, it's kind of the question that drives so much of the controversy and the the fan furor over this park uh, because Epcot has meant so many different things uh, going back to what it meant to Walt Disney uh, in the 1960s uh, to what it meant to maybe those early Imagineers in the 1970s and the early 80s when they were creating and opening the park to what it meant to the Michael Eisner era of corporate leadership uh, when it ceased to be you know Epcot the acronym and became Epcot just the title of the park um, to what it means now in the in the new era of Bob Chapek. I mean, I think to me, my like the the thing that I love about Epcot is that it is this permanent World's Fair that took the place of what used to be this grand tradition where the whole world came together for a World's Fair, sort of like they would come together for the Olympics. But this wasn't athletic; it was brainy, right? Uh, we don't have those anymore. But Epcot took the place of of those events for the world and and decided to make its theme uh, because World Fairs always had themes, right? Its theme was changing the world like right like learning about um like what the future could be and and what a global community could look like and so like that was the theme of this global world's fair and i just find that to be not only inspiring but just impressively bold for a theme park uh to to i mean the the i i think that academics would often kind of cynically dismiss the idea that a theme park could be something other than like a commercial endeavor um but i think epcot in in some ways aspired to be more than that uh so i just love that epcot is bold and that it was weird. We'll talk about that with some of the music too. But it, much of early Epcot was very, very weird. Um, so yeah, just a, a weird, brave park. So there's a, a long, convoluted answer for you. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. What was your first experience like at Epcot? Do you remember when that was and what your day entailed? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I was definitely very young. I mean, I did have the the good fortune of getting to experience Epcot when it was Epcot Center uh, in the late 80s or very early 90s. Uh, and I think like a lot of kids who experienced the park in those days, I was both like impressed by it because it seemed so different uh, and so sort of... Um, I don't know if I don't know if I took if I construed it as weird at the time, but it seemed just very uh, edgy, I guess. But at the same time, it seemed boring, and that was that was the like the hot take on Epcot in its early years. Uh, and I think to some extent that was fair. Uh, and so they they've grappled with how to how to fix that over the years. But that's that's kind of my my memory of Epcot is being very impressed by the place, but very bored by some of the specific attractions there. Uh, I don't know. What, what was your earliest experience? Yeah, mine was a, a little bit later, but I was seven years old and it was 99 and it was okay. right before the millennium celebration. So I actually went twice in 99 once at the beginning of the year. And then once the millennium celebration kicked into high gear. And I, I just remember being totally, overwhelmed and impressed by how much cool stuff there was because I was the type of kiddo who just loved learning and discovering new things and I felt like here the park that was the epitome of optimism and discovery and even though some of the classic attractions like World of Motion and Horizons were no longer in the picture I remember being blown away by Universe of Energy and Spaceship Earth and Living Seas among others 
Yeah. Gosh, that's a great time to have your first experience, I think, just because the Millennium Celebration was such a big event. Uh, you know, Epcot had a parade and all of that. So uh, I think that, that must have been a cool time to see it. Yeah, I I really have such fond memories of, of the park. I remember not necessarily caring for World Showcase as much, save for like seeing some of the Disney characters. And I remember the American Adventure, among others. But you know, kind of like what you're describing, it's not often until you are a little bit older that you maybe appreciate some of these uh, more, uh, whether they're intellectual manifestations of of things in the parks or, or even uh, learning about other cultures or things that are perhaps not as straightforward entertainment as you would find at the studios or, or Magic Kingdom for that matter. So I think in, in that way, not only do people change, I certainly evolved in the sense of the the types of offerings that are available to guests in terms of entertaining while simultaneously educating them. Yeah. And you know, what's cool about that is that I've talked to so many people, you know, like myself, like you, uh, a lot of people who are hardcore Epcot fans today who had that same kind of experience when they were kids. I mean, some of the uh, attractions were lost on them. Uh, some of it bored them. And yet Epcot managed to make a deep impression. So there's something about that experience. I don't know if it's that maybe as kids, we recognized that it was respecting our intelligence, that it was speaking to us on a level that other attractions weren't. And so maybe even if we didn't quite engage with it, maybe there's something about like feeling validated in that way that um, that makes the that makes the difference but i do remember distinctly getting the sense of like this is different this is a different kind of experience and it's clearly enough whatever epcot however it is that it connected with us as kids it's enough that it inspired this generation that is fiercely protective of the legacy of epcot center decades later and you know we probably don't even have a strong sense of just how profoundly that park experience uh change the world because i mean i i've 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 heard stories from people who went into the sciences because uh, they were inspired by their early trips there uh stories of people who visited other parts of the world because they were so taken with the world showcase pavilions as kids uh and i'm sure that that kind of uh impact is more widespread than there is any you know record uh to to document it well, it seems like that would just be a fantastic book of its own, right? The impact of Epcot in terms of people channeling certain careers or directions in their lives because of things they first experienced while in the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm I'm wondering, too, in terms of having been at the, the park over the, the past few decades, what what has been the, the biggest change you've seen in terms of new directions it's taken, whether be the attractions or the landscapes or the experience. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think Epcot went through a little bit of an identity crisis in the mid-1990s, largely in response to this pervasive criticism that the park was boring, uh, that it didn't speak to children. Uh, And so you see a change in the mid-90s wherein Epcot tried very hard to be cool, uh, tried very hard to make kids like it. Uh, And I think you know, it kind of smacked of desperation. It kind of smacked of like older adults trying to figure out what was hip. Um, and so they poured a lot of money uh, into renovating, uh, especially Future World in the mid 90s to make it this like hip experience. And so many of those attractions flops. Um, 
were kind of rejected by the the general park audience and we haven't seen a lot of investment in future world since then so it's been stuck in this weird kind of like mid 90s attempt to modify the 80s ever since um and so we're maybe just now seeing walt disney world finally getting around to saying like okay let's take a fresh new look at this yeah i think that's a, a very apt way of putting it and we're going to be talking about some of the the attractions and experiences that mark particular eras of Epcot's history and our discussion of the music and eventually the books too. So how about we jump right into it? So when when I asked you, you know, let's talk about Epcot and and how it how it has been documented in terms of the literature we read and and also importantly the the things that we hear as we're walking around the park or experiencing the attractions, looking back at what is no longer at Epcot, if we want to view this as our first uh, main discussion, the past Epcot. So as of 2019, what is no longer part of of Epcot's being, what are some essential pieces of music that you think of as defining Epcot, however you might interpret that? Yeah, gosh, there are so many. Uh, do you remember maybe like the early, mid-2000s, uh, well, I guess it was around the time of the 50th anniversary of Disneyland. Walt Disney Records released this giant box set called A Musical History of Disneyland. I have that. I love it. Yes. Ah, oh, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, so it's like this very posh, deluxe, like red velvety kind of box set that it came in. And it's just, you know, full of songs uh, with, you know, 50 years worth of, of Disneyland music history. And I really think we need the same thing for Epcot, even though it's a much younger park. Uh, surprisingly, it has as rich a musical history. Uh, you could fill the same number of discs and then some uh, with all the music that's been created, uh, much of which is, is no longer heard in the parks, um, in the park these days. And so I, I really hope that maybe for the 40th anniversary of the park, uh, we'll get something like that in 2022. Who knows? I guess physical media is dying in the music world, right? But uh, I guess we could start with um, the entrance loop. Um, yeah, let's jump right into the entrance. That's a, probably the most appropriate way of starting our journey, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess so, because it's you know it's the first thing you hear. And w what I love about this is that Epcot A has an original composition that welcomes you as you enter the park, uh, and B that that original composition is part of a larger. Uh, medley of instrumental versions of songs that appear uh, in attractions throughout the park. And so it works as a kind of overture uh, for the park as a whole, which we don't get in the other parks so much. I mean, when you enter Disneyland or Magic Kingdom, what you're hearing is essentially a collection of, you know, just like Disney songs, largely songs from the movies, which is very nice. It's very charming. And I think it's a perfect introduction to Magic Kingdom. I'm not criticizing that. Um, you look at Hollywood Studios, same sort of thing. It used to be you got a collection of, of great movie scores. Now you get more character-driven songs from Disney movies. Uh, and in Animal Kingdom, you get kind of like atmospheric music. Uh, but Epcot is the one park that greets you with an overture, which I think kind of sets up the park experience as a cohesive work of art uh, and the way that we would have an overture welcoming us into uh, you know, a, a musical theater show. Uh, so it's just, it's just very neat that uh, they saw fit to do that. Uh, and what an introduction it is. Um, that that piece of music, I have the name here, it was composed by a guy named uh, David Arkenstone. And uh, it's been modified a little bit over the years. I think what we hear now is is like a, 
a, a more grandiose uh, arrangement of what was there in originally 1982. But man, it just really captures both the futurism and again, the boldness of this park's um, personality. I think it just like instantly conveys that in song as, as you walk into the park. Yeah, I think that's really important to illustrate the differences across the parks and, and how Epcot is distinct in that manner. And and obviously the, the loop itself has changed over time to reflect certain attractions that have come and gone too. Yeah. What, what are, in terms of the extinct Epcot attractions that are unfortunately no longer part of the park, which ones strike you as as perhaps having the most quintessential Epcot-esque music because i i certainly have some that i've all introduced um to the discussion but i'd love for you to share some that come to mind okay well i would start with probably the universe of energy because i think it's given us three true classics uh you know going back to the original version of that attraction uh, you had two songs uh the song universe of energy and then energy you make the world go round uh, and I'm going to start by talking about those, I guess. They're they're very exuberant. And uh, they're a little bit weird for me in that, I mean, we're singing very passionately about energy. Uh, particularly the song, Energy You Make the World Go Round. It is written as and performed as a love ballad, uh, like singing to energy. <laughs> so it's a little, like only in the 1980s, I think, with that fly. We're all too very ironic and self-aware now. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's nice to travel back in time uh, to, to a, you know, an era where that, that kind of thing could fly. Um, and so there's just something very transportive about it in that sense. Um, but man, Universe of Energy is so freaking catchy. And it is by the guys who wrote the songs for Peach Dragon. Uh, which I'm a huge fan of, and I love that music. Um, so it's just cool that they played a role in Epcot as well. Um, so yeah, the, and then we can talk about the song that came with uh, the second iteration of that traction in a minute, but do you want to talk about those two first? Yeah, I would have to agree with you with Universe of Energy, the song being extremely catchy. And and it's almost, it feels very kitschy from the standpoint of, you know, the the name of the pavilion is is, you know, universe of energy and here you have the song also the same title and it's just so emphatic it's universe of energy yeah and that was a horrible rendition but it's basically no, i loved it it's it's so it's ridiculously effortless and bombastic and yet <laughs> it's like i guess it makes sense because you wouldn't want a song about energy to be extremely calm and and boring because it wouldn't fit the tone but it's just it seems out of place you wouldn't expect this really upbeat pop song regarding a relatively dry subject (laughs) yeah that's so true and that's a great point i've never really thought about how appropriate it is that a song about energy is itself so energetic Uh, but it totally is and yeah i just love that it starts with this um very electronic sound and it almost sounds like um the intro to like a breaking news segment on the evening news, uh, which which relays a sense of importance to what you're about to hear. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's great. So we want to talk about more on the universe of energy front. I know the the next iteration. So would you like to explore that? Yeah. Well, so then uh, about the mid '90s, we get uh, we get Ellen's Energy Adventure, the second iteration of this attraction, and it comes with a new instrumental piece. I think it's called Ellen's Energy Adventure, the main theme for the attraction, and it's composed yep. by Bruce Broughton. Is that right? I think so. Yep. Absolutely. 
Yeah, who I'm, we're going to be saying his name probably over and over again. He's one of the the titans of Epcot music. Uh, really, there are four names I always think of as being like the big four for Epcot songs. It's uh, Bruce Broughton, uh, Bob Moline or Robert Moline, uh, the Sherman Brothers, and Buddy Baker. And there are others in the mix there too, but you know, those are four names will probably come to again and again. Uh, and Bruce Broughton has, has done a lot of work outside of uh, Disney as well. I think most recently he's scored the TV show, The Orville, uh, which itself has a very Epcot sound about it. Um, oh, yeah. But this piece of music, uh, talk about energetic again, uh, as, as the pavilion calls for. Uh, it's just so wonderful. Uh, just like as a standalone piece of music, divorced from the attraction, divorced from the park, it's just a great thing to play uh, and to listen to. And I recently came across a blog article. I forget the site now, but they were counting down the the greatest Epcot uh, compositions of all time, and they they voted this the number one best piece of score to come out of Epcot. Well, they definitely have good taste. Yeah. I would put it probably at the top of my list too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I think this is, for me, the demise of Ellen's Energy Adventure will always be one of the saddest things because I had such a fondness for the humor of the attraction, the significance of the messaging, and what ties it all together, Broughton's magnificent score. It's one that, yes, the four and a half, five minute theme is totally exhilarating and orchestral and it feels grand and John Williams-esque, but then you have all of the background music in, for instance, the traveling theater when you're first boarding the vehicles. And mm-hmm. it's a spin of the theme, but it's a little bit lighter and uh, almost romantic. And there are other illustrations of the theme being remixed in of, in certain ways throughout the whole attraction. It is, I, I really think it was a quintessential Epcot attraction and, and such a huge loss, especially for those of us who you know, grew up in the, the 90s and 2000s, and our main impression of, of Universe of Energy is, is seeing Ellen and Bill Nye and hearing Braun score. Yeah, totally agree. I think for all the unfortunate developments that came out of that mid-90s identity crisis, the saving grace was Ellen's energy adventure. Uh, as much as I do love uh, and respect the original Universe of Energy, uh, I, I tend to agree that it was an across-the-board improvement, and I am really sad to see that attraction go. Uh, but at least for now, the theme song does live on uh, in the common areas of Future World. You'll sometimes hear it play uh, throughout the entrance plaza, and I think maybe around Fountain of Nations as well. Uh, and so hopefully uh, it stays with us in that way for some time. Absolutely. Well, since we're staying in the past, but maybe also staying in in that part of future world, do we want to venture over to Wonders of Life, perhaps? Yeah, let's do it. So Wonders of Life, um, which finally is going to have some new life in it after nearly 14 years of of lack of activity. It was a really major hub for from about 1989 until about 2005-ish. Um, and it featured several attractions and a lot of exhibits and little activities. But w- when you think of Wonders of Life music, Aaron, are there any particular moments or pieces that surface in your mind? Gosh, you know, this is a pavilion. We did not, like my family and I did not spend as much time in it for whatever reason. Uh, growing up, my biggest memory of Wonders of Life is Body Wars. 
uh, and, and the score is, I, I think, probably about what you'd expect a body war score, <laughs> score to be. Uh, but I know that a lot of people have very fond memories of the music from, for example, Cranium Command. Uh, I don't know. Did you did you grow up with any of that music? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. At, oh, the, sorry, the making of me also. Right. I, yeah. Yes. And here our friend, Mr. Bruce Braun reappears because he was responsible for that really beautiful and, and grand score about life beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that goes right back to Epcot just being such a bold theme park. I mean, who could have predicted that one of the early attractions in this park would be about conception and the beginnings of human life, uh, which is again and again, Epcot surprises and goes where, where one would not expect it to go. Uh, to boldly go, one might say, uh, where a theme park has not gone before. Uh, yeah, and I, I love that. Well, you know what? I don't know if you were anticipating using a Star Trek pun, but it actually fits in really well because the director of Body Wars was Leonard Nimoy. That's right. Yeah, so I'd forgotten about that. Everything ties together. But you mentioned the, the Body Wars score for a second. What I liked about it was that it was very... It was almost March-like, like almost like going into battle or war, and it had a really classic Hollywood film-type sound to it. And the reason might be because it had a really amazing composer. It was Leonard Rosenman, who was one of those composers best known for films like Rebel Without a Cause and some of those films of like the mid-20th century. So they, they enlisted some top talent for the scores in Wonders of Life. Gosh, see, this is why we need a musical history of Epcot collection. I mean, just right here in this one pavilion, long since shuttered, more or less, <laughs> there are so many pieces of music, not only the songs, but just these pieces of score. And uh, I mean, there there was common area music too, right? I, I, I believe there were original pieces of music scored just for like the concourse inside Wonders of Life. So there's so much music to draw from. Yeah, no, there was an impressive array of, of music in just that one pavilion. So it's definitely missed. And uh, that making of me score, too, I what I loved about it is that it was very sentimental because there was a certain sweetness to talking about Marn Short's parents falling in love. But also mm. it was just very touching and, and playful at times because there was an animated sequence with the, the sperm and the egg. And it was just very, uh, just very clever and witty. And, and it was illustrated and and Braun just having a fun little time composing just zippy music. So something to, to check out on, on YouTube. The making of me is on there. Oh, that's so great. I wonder, do you think there's any chance that that particular piece of music makes its way into the Epcot Forever fireworks show? <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that's how it would begin, right? <laughs> At the beginning of life, right? Oh my gosh, it would be so thematically appropriate. And you know how Illuminations opens with like the one shooting star that goes across the sky? I mean, that could, they could do yes. that. It's like create the sperm in the egg with bursts in the sky. Oh gosh. Now, now this has been a PG-13 <laughs> rated episode of the podcast, so I must warn oh. your listeners. <laughs> Let's maybe uh, head in another direction yeah, and yeah. Uh, talk about some other classic extinct music from from the park aaron what are some others that you'd like to reflect on gosh well yeah i guess staying on that same side of the park i mean we can go into horizons we can go into world of motion uh both contributed 
classic pieces of music. Uh, you have the song New Horizons from the Ride Horizons, uh, which really drew lyrically its inspiration from the script for that ride that Tom Fitzgerald had written. And so you get that unforgettable chorus of, you know, if we can dream it, then we can do it. Uh, and you just what a what an inspiring message that has been um, so inspiring that has been falsely attributed to Walt Disney for, for many decades now. Uh, but yeah, I, um, I almost, I think that song gets underused, like for, for as much as the company wants to embrace that quote and, and slap it on merchandise and attribute it to Walt Disney themselves as they have done erroneously over the years, uh, you would think that this song would get played uh, more often uh, because I think it works as kind of an anthem, not only for Epcot, but really for the Disney company. I, I agree. I feel like that particular song is so reflective of what Epcot embodies, where it's all about investing time, effort and resources and dreams into making those aspirations a reality. Uh, I must say that I am guilty of having attributed the quote to Walt Disney in my community college commencement speech, I, I said, if you can dream, as Walt Disney once said, if you can dream. And now I realize, oh, I guess I should have done my homework a little bit more. And I later wrote a whole thesis on the history of Epcot. So I, I, I realized, yeah, there's a lot more to uh, interrogate in terms of those famous quotes. Yeah, it's so true. But I mean, no one can feel guilty about making that mistake because just because it has appeared in so many official capacities over the year. And uh, I actually have uh, a little plaque that was given to me as a gift, I think when I was in high school, that has Mickey Mouse on it. I think it's from Hallmark. And it has that quote. And it says, Walt Disney underneath. Uh, And so for years, I had that displayed on my desk. And then at some point, I learned the truth. (laughs) And so I took a Sharpie and I crossed out Walt Disney and I wrote Tom Fitzgerald (laughs) underneath uh, so that the plaque can still uh, be accurate. Tom Fitzgerald needs his own merchandise, apparently. So <laughs> I agree, he does. So thinking about Horizons for a minute, um, you, you mentioned the the iconic song. The score as well is also just quite grand and cheerful. You have George Wilkins mm-hmm. responsible for as the composer, and he was chiefly handling a lot of uh, music for the park and, and Disney for, for that era. When you think of Horizons music, what are some things or words that that surface well one thing i think is cool about horizons is that and I, I could be wrong but i believe that every piece of music in that pavilion was composed by george wilkins uh so whether it's what you're hearing when you're in the queue or in all these different parts of the ride and then of course the grand theme song all of it comes from the same composer and i'm not sure that that's true of the other pavilions and so, uh, granted, it is just the one ride experience there, but it's interesting to think about the idea of one concept, one whole pavilion being expressed musically entirely through the lens or the voice or what have you of, of a single composer. Um, I think that's pretty cool. That's a really important point because there are so many attractions where you have different voices in, of, in certain ways coming into the picture so that there's that level of consistency allows for there to be that uh, coherence, which is really nice. 
Yeah. But yeah, just musically so, so inspiring, so uplifting. I mean, I think in a certain sense, Horizons was kind of the heart of early future world uh, because it it was this sort of like go off and change the world kind of a message. Uh, and so it's very important for it to stir those emotions musically. And I think it was very effective in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I never had the opportunity of writing the attraction. And so consequently, my experiences have been limited to what I've read or watching videos on YouTube, but yeah. my gosh, there's so there's so many scenes with such beautiful tunes. Like I've listened to four hour, like as I'm studying or working, whatever, listening to like a three hour loop of the Mesa Verde scene because it's just on repeat, and I'm like, it's just calming. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's great. So it's neighbor uh, world of motion was also in existence for the first decade or so of the park. That also has some really cool music um, by Exitensio and Buddy Baker, as you mentioned, as one of those four Titan composers. What what do you think of World of Motion? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, you people when we talk about Exitensio as a songwriter, people always talk about uh, Grim Grinning Ghosts and Yoho a Pirate's Life for me, and somehow. It's fun to be free. It gets left off of that list. Uh, but this was like the other great attraction that he wrote uh, song lyrics for. Uh, and it's such a fun song. I mean, I, I, I've, I always think you can think of it as it's a free world because it's very much like it's a small world in that uh, it's the same song throughout the whole ride, but you're hearing it cast in different genres, uh, different settings. And so as you travel from one show scene to the next, you're hearing a completely different version, like a distinct cover version of the same song. And, you know, a credit to, to Buddy Baker for being able to compose and arrange the song so that it would sound um, so distinct from one scene to the next uh, but that just makes it such a blast to listen to yeah it's funny one of my notes that I listed under it's fun to be free is feels Sherman-esque very upbeat and joyful and it's true it has that quality because of that sense of uh, almost like a loop of the same lyrics but in a as you were saying, with the different spaces having slightly different variations, in that sense, it makes me think of Carousel Progress. Which oh, that's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. So there, with it's, it's a Carousel Progress, Carousel Progress, and it's a small world. Uh, both Sherman Brothers compositions. So yeah, you're right. It does sound very, very Sherman-esque. So if we want to shift over to maybe the other part of Future World, what in its past did you absolutely love in terms of the music? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I think like the greatest hit probably from that side of the park is one that's still with us today in some version. And that's, of course, One Little Spark. Uh, speaking of the Sherman Brothers, this is a Sherman Brothers composition. Uh, you know, just that that whole idea, One Little Spark, you know, the lyric goes on to talk about how like imagination begins with just one little spark. And um I talk a lot about this in my book, that that's, that's sort of like all we can ask Epcot to do. Um, if, if the park's mission was to change the world, right, which is a very, again, lofty goal for a theme park, um, you know, what does that mean? How can a park change the world? And, and I think it comes down to, well, what it, the only thing that it can do is is light one little spark uh, in a guest's mind, you know, whether it's a spark of curiosity, a spark of insight, a spark of knowledge, one little new thing to walk away and think about. And that can kind of like worm its way into your brain. And over the course of time, it really can change one person's life, 
multiply that by millions of guests over the course of decades and decades. And I think you do have a world-changing impact, uh, but it all comes down to just this one little spark. And so, you know, the Sherman brothers, I don't even know if, if they knew when writing this song that they were kind of um, explaining the the method by which this park would achieve its, uh, its mission. Uh, but it, I think it really is that. Uh, and at the same time, it's this wonderful interrogation of the human imagination, uh, which is something that scientists still don't quite understand, right? There is, by the way, an actual imagination institute, as you may know, uh, that that is trying to understand from a scientific standpoint what the imagination is, how it works, how we can better understand and document it. Uh, and so for a theme park ride in the 1980s to try to do that same thing is so impressive to me. And um, I just think the Sherman Brothers did such a great job of capturing what that is. So, so my next question for you is, is Eric Idle running the real Imagination Institute? <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, what do you, how do you feel about Eric Idle? Because he's, he's very controversial in the fan community. I think it's hard for me because I did not experience the original attraction. So yeah. I don't necessarily enter from that standpoint. I can definitely appreciate how the Nigel Channing character kind of uh, infiltrates uh, Dreamfinder's old space. I also really loved Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, which was also mm-hmm. part of imagination and and his trademark Monty Python esque humor uh, in that attraction too was also very charming. So I'm not sure if I have a strong opinion one way or another, but uh, I've always appreciated his his trademark humor. Yeah. Yeah, I said, you know, people hate on Eric Idle, and I think Eric Idle is a is a, a comedy great, uh, you know, outside of Epcot, uh, and I think he probably did about the best he could do with the with the material he was given. But it's it's a tough spot to be in because you're replacing a beloved character. Uh, I do every time I hear the original version of this song. And those opening lines from the Dreamfinder. I mean, I just feel warm all over. Uh, you know, in, in in my book, I write about him being as as I write, I write about him as being this sort of Santa Claus type figure. Uh, he even looks a little bit like Santa Claus. And so there is just this like magical otherworldliness about him. Um, and the way the Shermans compose, like that part of the song in particular, when he's first addressing us, uh, there's lots of just sort of bouncing notes. Um, it, is, it sounds very toy-like in a way, uh, which again, I think was clever. That's a, that's a really interesting observation. And the Imagination Pavilion has also been host to a number of 3D films, or 4D films, really, over over the past several decades. First was Magic Journeys, then Captain mm-hmm. EO, and then most recently, Extinct, is Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Uh, thoughts on the music of any or all of those three different shows? So yeah, Magic Journeys. Uh, what a trip of a song. What a trip of an attraction. Uh, I think it is best experienced... Uh, coupled with the video. So whether that's on YouTube or if you can remember experiencing it in person as an attraction, uh, because the visuals are just so far out there and the music matches them. So just the marriage of the two makes it uh, quite a head trip, unlike any other Disney attraction, uh, very much a product of its time. But I am impressed by how haunting it sounds and and yet in a way playful and dreamlike at the same time uh, and so it's both eerie and wistful it i i 
I don't know that instrumentally it is circusy, but for some reason I get caught up in like a circus feeling. <laughs> Maybe it's more the visuals that bring me there, but I, I think of Pippin every time I hear this song. Uh, but here again, this idea of Epcot being weird uh, in its early days and leaning into the weirdness. And, I, and to some extent, the 80s were weird and, and celebrated weirdness. Uh, but that's uh, anytime I play this song, I'm just taken back to a time when uh, when Epcot was kind of trippy. And I like that. I, yeah, I, I've heard the song in a few different iterations, not in person, um, of course. But what I really love is there was a soundtrack, an album about, I want to say a decade ago, released called the Sherman Brothers Songbook. Mm-hmm. And they have a really nice rendition of Magic Journeys by I think it was the Disney Studio Chorus and it's again capturing the the haunting quality of the song with the wistfulness as you described I think those are two really apt words and in, in c- capturing what it what it feels like what it sounds like and similarly trippy maybe was Captain EO which occupied that space <laughs> for a number of years and came back under the tribute umbrella but this the the score was by James Horner and then you have Michael Jackson songs it was a music filled show thoughts on Captain EO yeah gosh I love Captain EO so so much uh, and in addition to the scores you mentioned there are these two pop songs essentially uh, and they are very much Michael Jackson songs. Uh, I think his music kind of works as a genre all its own, uh, but they're very sort of new Jack swing uh, in the way that so much of his pop music was. Uh, these could have been released to the radio as Michael Jackson singles. In fact, one of them was uh, Another Part of Me, which is the last song you hear in the attraction, later became uh, a radio single and actually a hit. Uh, it, it never gets remembered as one of Michael Jackson's greatest hits, but Another Part of Me charted at number 11 on the Billboard Top 100. It was the final single from his album, Bad. Uh, and uh, he wrote both of these songs himself, um, composed them, wrote the lyrics. Uh, I think we are here to change the world. There was one other writer who was credited with the lyrics along with him. But um, we were talking earlier about New Horizons and the way that that song works as a kind of mission statement for the park. And I think, you know, that went away in uh, the early to mid 90s. And then you had this song to kind of carry to take up that mantle. Uh, we are here to change the world. Uh, again, that was part of Epcot's mission statement was to change the world. Uh, and so I love that this song expressed that idea so uh, headstrongly, I guess. Uh, it feels like a call to action. And I feel that way about another part of me, which or maybe it's, it's uh, lyrically more of a, a subtle song, but it's about this idea it talks about like a new generation coming in and and deciding to view the world through the lens of love uh, there's that lyric we're sending out a major love and it talks about it's essentially you know like we're no longer going to be a generation of war we're going to be a generation of peace we're going to be a generation that focuses on cultural harmony what we have in common versus what divides us and so that's the whole idea of this lyric you're just another part of me uh which is a beautiful sentiment. And I think that that song works as a kind of a rallying cry for that generation, for Gen X. Uh, and uh, maybe it doesn't always get uh, remembered uh, as much as some of the other songs, but I think both of these are just um, really like A plus solid compositions. 
Yeah, and as you put it, they added to Michael Jackson's really rich catalog, and it's unfortunate they don't get enough attention because they're great, and it also speaks to the impact of uh, of music from Disney attractions to have had that type of global impact too, which is kind of sweet. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's it's, it's cool that Disney was able to feature its very own exclusive Michael Jackson music video in the height of his fame, which was a fame that surpassed all other you know versions of pop fame. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I, I can't really even imagine Disney managing to convince like Beyonce or somebody today to like shoot a music video and, and screen it exclusively inside a Disney theme park. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there was this whole chapter of Michael Jackson's career that was in Epcot and Disneyland. It was a totally an 80s experience and that was eventually revitalized upon his passing and but after that came a Disney film adaptation of sorts. We had the popular Honey, I Shrunk the Kids franchise in the late 80s, early 90s. And then that was eventually translated into Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, which had a lot of fun effects. And um, I, I sure remember being scared every time when the snake would pop out. So, mm-hmm. But in terms of the music, our friend Bruce Broughton comes back to compose a really playful and and fun score for what was arguably a a really humorous and and silly attraction yeah 100 percent fun playful uh correct me if i'm wrong the the original honey i shrunk the kids movie that was composed by james horner yep absolutely yeah so i'm not i'm not as familiar with that score as i should be i don't know if you are but i'm wondering if Bruce Broughton was taking his cue musically from the score for those films. I'd have to listen back to the score, but one thing that I remember really well was the animated sequence at the beginning of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and it was it it had that sense of whimsy. However, I don't I do not believe the attraction score derives from the film score at all. Okay. But yeah, there is, in addition to being playful, there's this very uh, sort of like institutional quality to the to the main theme uh, for what I guess is the Imagination Institute. Uh, yeah, very playful, but you do kind of get the sense that, okay, I could be entering like a real life museum or an exhibition uh, where I'm going to be given a guided tour. Uh, and so it has that, uh, it's like almost a studious quality to it, but again, in a playful way that I really appreciate. Indeed. Well, something that was perhaps less playful, but rather dry at times was the land. And that's not meant to be a pun, but there was <laughs> there there was a lot of a lot of content there, at least in its earliest days that were a little bit more subtle and and focused on just the majesty of the world we occupy, whether it be the symbiosis film, Listen to the Land, which was the original representation of living with the land, I should say. Mm-hmm. And and then you had Kitchen Cabaret, which preceded Food Rocks, which we can talk about too, but that was a, a more animated, fun illustration of, you know, let's have fun with our food and, and let's understand nutrition. But thinking about the past of the land, what what comes to mind on the music front? I mean, definitely my strongest memories uh, from just my childhood visits there would be the song "Listen to the Land," uh, just a 
composed, written, and performed, I think, by Robert Moline. So I think this is, this is like the one time we hear his singing voice. Is that right? <laughs> Again, it's it's the type of song that only could fly in the 80s. I think we're all too uh, wry and ironic these days to let a song this unabashedly uh, sentimental uh, <laughs> fly. Uh, but it is an example of a song that sounds very 70s despite debuting in the 1980s. And there are a few of these in early Epcot. Uh, there's Tomorrow's Child, which we might talk about with Spaceship Earth. Uh, I think maybe to some extent, uh, um, Magic Journeys and New Horizons, you could say this about them too. Uh, and I always like to think about that as an example of how, even though we all tend to def- to categorize music by decades, that really these styles bleed from one decade into another. And so in 1982, the sounds of the 70s were not dead. Uh, and so they're very much alive in songs like this one. Uh, vocally, Robert Moline sounds a lot, I think, like John Denver. This whole song comes across as a, as a John Denver-esque song. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if if that description appeared in the treatment uh, when they were conceiving this attraction. Uh, But yeah, it just totally works. I mean, it makes you want to listen to the land. It makes you want to like, like you wish you wish your tour guide at the front of the boat had a guitar and was like performing this for you live and you were engaging in a sing-along. So yeah, it's very affecting. I I would agree. And when I think of the past of the land, because my first time to Epcot was in the late 90s I I loved Food Rocks which was just a, a fun musical stage show that featured different uh, pieces of food singing much like Kitchen <laughs> Cabaret but but what was so weird and fun was and you I wouldn't have realized this as a as a little kid but they were basically uh, different iterations of popular pop songs from like everything from the 50s to the 80s, we would have uh, the Beach Boys, or the, I should say the Peach Boys singing Good Nutrition mm-hmm. and uh, Aretha Franklin's Respect through um, the Get the Point Sisters singing just a little bit. Um, <laughs> so the, the Pointer Sisters um, yeah, yeah. too. So it, there was just a, a lot of fun variations of, of music and, and that attraction and also Kitchen Cabaret, which was the predecessor. Yeah. And you know what's occurring to me like just now as I'm hearing you talk about this is, um, so you look at Kitchen Cabaret, the original iteration of this attraction, and I believe that those were all like musical pastiche, but they weren't parodies per se, right? So you had different food items singing songs in different genres that maybe kind of like mimicked a particular artist or a particular style, but I don't think Mm -hmm. they were outright parodies. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that is. Um, Yeah. They were, they like, in a sense, there was a bit of that, like, I'm I'm at my friend Wikipedia is helping me out now, so... Uh There was an act uh, called the Boogie Woogie Bakery Boy, which was a parody of the (laughs) Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. So there was a bit of that, but you're right. There was some more um, pastiche elements um, in there, too. Because this was uh, Buddy Baker either composed or arranged these, I believe. It's very interesting that if the attraction took more of a bend toward parody in the 80s going into the 90s, you know, to think about that happening parallel to the uh, ascension of Weird Al Yankovic in popular culture, uh, and and so just sort of the rise of musical parody as a popular art form. 
that's just interesting to think about how maybe Epcot would have parroted that with Food Rocks. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I I would totally sign up for Weird Al versions of like if they want to bring back Food Rocks, but with all Weird Al, that would be fun. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. You know, so I was on a podcast not long ago talking about the role of celebrities in Epcot and whether that's appropriate. Uh, and and which types of celebrities are the best fit for the parks? And it didn't occur to me until now that like if ever they're going to bring back a celebrity for an attraction, I think Weird Al's personality uh, and just his whole sentiment is so would be so well paired with the Disney parks personality. And he himself is a Disney fan and has um, you know performed Disney parodies or songs about Disney in the past. And so I now now that we're talking about it, I really want that to happen. Some sort of a Weird Al attraction. <laughs> lead the campaign and yes. the another major pavilion that still exists at Epcot but with a slightly Pixar-y theme is the Living Seas so now it's the Seas with Nemo's, Nemo and Friends so Living Seas music thoughts yeah I mean you know I, I'm not as this is not like a song that I queue up often and um, I don't even know I, I assume there must be a high quality version of it on YouTube I don't know that I've heard one but what I remember of this is the opening of I guess like the main theme for the original Living Seas having these very like sharp piano notes and it's very kind of John Carpenter like the theme to Halloween <laughs> which is not what you would expect <laughs> the Living Seas to be um, but what I can what I can hear of that in my head, it's very sort of like creepy and Halloween-esque. <laughs> well, and similarly, the, the Seas film, which was that intro that would kind of orient you to the history of the oceans, that was very intimidating too, because you it's like almost like a black screen and you hear the narrators saying, it rained and it rained. And it, it sounds like it's just the introduction to a horror film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she says she says something like the deluge or something like that. And it's just it's yep. very dramatically arresting. Uh, I do remember that about uh, the living seas. So, yeah, it's interesting. Well, we couldn't talk about future world without discussing the centerpiece of the whole area of the park being spaceship Earth and then also Communicore interventions. And and now interventions is a thing of the past, too. So. When you think of, of that area of the park and particularly those attractions, what musical memories come to mind for the past iterations of Spaceship Earth and also Communicore Innoventions? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, you know, I guess speaking of Communicore, there is a song that I didn't grow up with. I mean, this this wasn't around very long and I, it was long gone before I ever made, made my first trip to Epcot Center. Uh, but it's the the computer song. Yes. Uh and I think the only reason this song has lived on is because it appeared on that early vinyl album soundtrack for Epcot, uh, which I think was just called like Epcot Center, the album, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, this uh, this is another, I think, Sherman Brothers song. Yeah, the Sherman Brothers. Uh, so what's interesting about this song is that it it's a song within a show, within a tour, within an exhibit within a post-show exhibition within an attraction because so it's the computer song which was the song performed during the astuter computer computer review uh which was a, a show element uh within the computer center tour 
which was part of the Computer Center, which was an exhibit within Communicore, which was the post-show exhibition of the Spaceship Earth attraction. So it's very, very uh, like deep into the annals of Epcot history, and it didn't last long at all. And so it's amazing that this song is still with us today, but I think a lot of people, again, remember it fondly just because it did appear on this soundtrack album. And it's just classically uh, Sherman Brothers playful, uh, and there's some nice wordplay. Uh, and I think the thing I like about it most is that is how excited it is about the concept of a computer. <laughs> uh, it just goes, it reminds you of a time of when uh, that would have been a real novelty, and and it was celebrated as a novelty in early Epcot. Well, that's a, a deep dive, like no other. Within, it's almost like Inception, a dream within a dream within a dream, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which makes me think it'd be cool if you know if Disney on the rights to Inception and that could fit into the Imagination Pavilion, but that's another story. So, but yeah, that that is that is a fun song, and another uh, piece of music that I love from the center of the park is really just the classic score to Spaceship Earth. There's there have been a few iterations of Spaceship Earth over time, and you chronicle that very well in your book, as as we'll describe in our book-centered conversation, but I, I was a, a, a 90s, 2000s kid, and I absolutely loved the score for Spaceship Earth with J- Jeremy Irons' narration. Mm-hmm. And in that iteration, we had a score from, I want to pronounce his name correctly, um, Edo Gidoti, and it's just a rousing, transporting score. But did you, did you, you had a chance to experience the Walter Cronkite version? You know, I want to say yes. I have – at this point, it's like I'm not sure if my memories are real memories or just you know, from having seen videos over the years and my kind of projecting those on my memories as a child. I would have been there to write it, yes. Uh, but really the version that I grew up with is also the Jeremy Irons version. Uh, looking back, I have a fondness for all four narrators uh, over the years uh, and, and the different – qualities that they and their scripts brought to this attraction but i do think that kind of the the best of all worlds is the jeremy irons version uh, because it was uh very poignant and very dignified uh, but it was also warm and emotive and i think the other versions of the script have have tipped to one side or the other but you kind of got all of that uh, in a very stately delivery from jeremy irons uh and and then like you said score to go along with it and that score was just, I remember being absolutely, m- finding it mesmerizing, particularly once you would descend into the uh, tunnel where it's um, black and then you have the different, um, fi- I think it was like fiber optic lights um, as you would descend and just that music being so entrancing. I, I just have such a fondness for, for that attraction score and thankfully, you know, we can all experience it. Uh, virtually through YouTubes and other encapsulations, but what a magnificent score! Yeah, no, it really was. Uh, and and can you imagine having again? This just goes back to why we need this music, this album release. But uh, can you imagine having like high quality releases of the scores for each version of Spaceship Earth over the years? Because there's no there's no way to just hear the score like isolated, uh, not not in high quality anyway. Now, but that would be so great. Right, especially with with the different scenes being blended together as opposed to having the individual tracks reflective of the individual spaces or rooms in the attraction. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's like a whole collection of cues from each version of Spaceship Earth. I mean, that could be a disc all its own, right? Uh, but yeah, gosh, there's there's such a treasure of music just in this one attraction. And then, of course, we have the new score uh, by Bruce Broughton, uh, which I also just absolutely love. Uh, I think it feels... Um, I don't know, like percolating is the word that comes to mind. Like it, it's just like popping with potential. Uh, it's it's very grand, but then like as we move into the future, uh, like that that matrix esque tunnel with all that binary coding flying by us, um, yes. and it's just the music is just like it, it's it's like it, it, if I were to visualize what I'm hearing, it's like notes leaping up from the ground into the sky, and uh, yeah, I just I love it. Well, this is perhaps a perfect transition to. Uh, more succinctly, but really recognize some of the park music that currently exists in Epcot as of fall 2019, and really recognizing that some of the same music is still present in different ways. But you you also have World Showcase, which via those endless wonderful loops for each country and some of the attractions having their own scores. When you think of Epcot today, Aaron, whether it's in Future World or World Showcase too, because I think we need to give World Showcase its its due and credit, Mm -hmm. what attractions or what areas, what pieces of music at Epcot today feel like quintessential Epcot, like as as if it's always existed or perhaps it even has? Yeah, gosh. Well, I mean, if I were to answer that question in the sense of what relatively new composition feels like it belongs as part of the pack. Uh, I mean, I, this keeps us in future world, but I would have to go with the theme to Soren, uh, originally composed by Jerry Goldsmith, uh, I recently rearranged uh, by Bruce Broughton. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i proud of like how quickly fans have embraced that song. Uh, it now plays, uh, as we mentioned earlier, as part of the entrance loop and throughout the future world common areas. I think it appears on the, the several of the most recent resort soundtracks. And so it has instantly become one of like the great Disney Park theme songs um, and just so beautiful, so sweeping, so instantly recognizable, uh, so effortlessly capturing um, the the concept, the feeling, the idea of flight. Um and uh, it feels very much like a film score, uh, in addition to being uh, a piece of music for a theme park ride. I, I couldn't agree with you more. When Matt Parrish was on the show, we talked extensively about Soren, and my my fervor for that score has is undying because it is just so beautiful. I think if it could be, if for some reason a theme park attraction score could be nominated for an Oscar, I think this would win. <laughs> so. It's that epic. Oh, 100%. 100%. This is a little tangential, but and I I don't know if you were planning to talk about this, but if I could just mention the Fountain of Nations uh, in Future World. Yeah, the music that plays there, there are, are a lot of different pieces of music. Uh, that play as part of like the fountain show. Uh, but one of them, and I think it's the one that people tend to identify as like the central theme of the fountain of nations. Uh, and it's uh, a song by Yanni <laughs> of all people uh, called standing in motion. And uh, I have heard Yanni say in interviews before that his greatest musical inspiration uh, was Jerry Goldsmith. 
And so that's just like a fun fact that for me kind of like ties those two things together and maybe like helps to explain why like a, a piece of music by Yanni fits so well into the musical palette of Epcot where this theme song for Soren also fits in so effortlessly. And both of them sort of speak to this idea of like things leaping to the sky, I guess, whether it's water or or us in a hang glider. Right. Well, and that that score, too, is so great because it blends together some really nice tunes from the Disney film catalog that never really get enough credit, like the Rocketeer and Iron Mm -hmm. Will and others. So it's a it's a nice medley of sorts that focuses on both great instrumental music from films, but also from different parts of society, too. Yeah, and uh, The Rescuers Down Under is in there, which is like like that movie score was composed by Bruce Broughton. So it's cool that he kind of like has this backdoor entry into Epcot because he composed this film score that then probably because he composed it, it felt like a natural fit uh, for the park to bring in as part of this fountain show. Uh, So it's cool that that's in there. Um, There's also this piece called Air Battle. Uh, which originally premiered as part of the Surprise in the Skies show, which was that like ridiculous show over the World Showcase, Showcase Lagoon in the early 90s, where like Mickey and friends were in like in parachutes, I think, or hot air balloons or something like that. Uh, another short-lived show from from weird Epcot history. But uh, the the there was a piece of music composed for that show called Air Battle by John Debney, who of course has done tons of work for Disney. Uh, His dad did tons of work for Disney over the years. Uh, John Debney composed the score for Hocus Pocus. And so I love that he's got a little piece of the uh, Fountain of Nations show that he can call his own as well. Indeed. Well, and on the World Showcase front, there's a lot of good examples of music that have been part of the park ever since the beginning. So a few that come to mind that are very celebratory and understandably because it's cultures basically patting themselves on the back, on their own back. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have Golden Dream from the American Adventure, Canada, yeah. you're, you're a Lifetime Journey, which is a Bob Moline tune. Obviously, the O Canada film uh, recently saw its final days and we're going to have a new iteration uh, soon enough. Hopefully, Canada, your Lifetime Journey um, is still in there, but other pieces from World Showcase that you want to recognize? Well, gosh, I mean, those two are such momentous pieces of music, and we're very lucky, I think, that we still have them today, uh, even as they have both been redone again and again. Uh, What I find interesting thinking about those two is, like, complementary anthems of patriotism is that, you know, like, as as an American, I can walk into the Canada Pavilion and think... Like, wow, these lyrics are really like a little bit over the top, you know? Um, but then I imagine that a non-American might walk into the American adventure and hear Golden Dream and think exactly the same thing about those lyrics. And it's just, uh, I think, maybe uh, inherent in the genre of national anthems <laughs> that the lyrics are extremely sentimental, extremely grandiose, quite dramatic. Uh, And that is certainly true of both of these. And yet that's part of their charm. Uh, I think Golden Dream uh, can and should sit alongside songs like Proud to be American or even God Bless America or dare I say the Star Spangled Banner as like some of, you know, one of the all time greats songs of american pride uh and and maybe someday it will kind of enter the songbook as like one of those um national greats 
Um, and it also makes me think of the Voices of Liberty. I don't think we can talk about the music of Epcot without talking about them. Uh, of course, they perform yes. Golden Dream very often, but they they perform a lot of different um, songs from just like just you know like random Americana songs. Uh, but what a rich part of Epcot history they have been now since since the opening. They've put out a few albums of their own, um, and I love that Epcot has its own kind of like resident musical troupe in the Voices of Liberty. Oh, absolutely. And certainly don't want to come across as too ethnocentric. So I want to recognize that there are some great background loops for each of the pavilions that include very authentic instruments and representations of what the sounds are like from particular countries, whether in in the UK, it feels like, oh, you're just stepping into a an English pub, or when you're in the China Pavilion, and you have, you know, the ornate architecture that just feels very rich and grand wherever you're stepping in world showcase it is like that you are in another place and the music really carries that narrative yeah 100 percent. and particularly in world showcase i think live music has always been such an integral part of the musical experience that is world showcase uh whether that is you know the drummers in the japan japan pavilion or um you know the various bands that have played outdoors at the canada pavilion over the years uh when you have holidays around the world there are the holiday storytellers there are the live musicians who perform in morocco uh, and so so much of the experience of just taking a lap around world showcase is not only hearing all of these really wonderful recorded pieces of music that play as background music uh, but also hearing again and again and again through just a 30 minute walk um, all these different live performances some of which have been the same performers uh, for decades now absolutely and and it comes even in subtler form that's not always just the the bands and and singers as you've illustrated but even some of the comedy acts, like I think of Sergio in Italy with his whistle and these mm. like little examples of, of music appearing in the park, which are just really fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one wonders, of course, there were all these attractions, rides, shows that were planned for the various country pavilions uh, that for one reason or another were never developed. And they're, they sort of perpetually exist as rumors for attractions that are soon to be built. And one wonders if any of those come to fruition, you know, might we get new original songs for some of these other countries that don't have them now? Indeed. Well, in thinking back of the whole history of Epcot and its music. I think we've taken a really grand and, and deep tour of what Epcot's music has looked like from the earliest days until really the modern day. And the notion of Epcot Essentials, what represents quintessential Epcot, I think what we've really emphasized through our discussion is that really every piece of the park has a little bit of the true Epcot spirit because there's just such fantastic representations of music every little spot of the park whether you were there on day one in 1982 or enjoying the park as it exists now in 2019 yeah absolutely and you know one thing like when i went to write a book about epcot i had previously written a book about magic kingdom and what was so surprising to me uh, was that even though Epcot is 11 years younger than Magic Kingdom, it somehow has as much, if not more, uh, history than Magic Kingdom does. And I think that that is reflected even in like the Epcot songbook. Um, you know, we have just talked about you know a large number of songs, uh, and yet 
however many we've discussed, we could probably discuss that many more again and still not have gone through all of the different pieces of music that have been created for this park over the years. And so uh, it's just it's such a, a wonderful history. Well, and I, I certainly hope, as you really beautifully articulated, that in 2022, to commemorate the 40th anniversary, that we will have some sort of full version of a lot of the scores and songs of Epcot's yesteryear and that we can have this music part of us in the highest quality format possible because thankfully we live in an age where we can kind of find things through the internet through youtube but in terms of those full versions those rich versions that that's that's on disney and and i hope walt disney records disney music emporium they they see the promise and and perhaps even the demand yeah, I hope so too. And I and I do think it's a real possibility. I mean, we've seen them uh, sort of take a deeper dive into the history of Disney music in recent years. There was the wonderful Walt Disney Legacy Collection series of CDs. Oh, yes. I mean, that's something I didn't think you know would ever be a reality uh, in the era of physical media dying away in the music field. Uh, but it was, and and you know, this is an active division of the company, and I think they are aware of uh, the fan demand uh, where early Epcot Center is concerned. I mean, we see that reflected certainly in the in-park merchandise where there has been a real resurgence in classic Epcot branding in the last couple of years. And so there does seem to be like a very intentional shift in that direction from merchandising. And so I think we could see it happen. Yes, fingers crossed. So there you have it. Those are Epcot essentials in terms of the music. There's a plethora of material to draw from, and I think uh, you and I really covered a lot of it in in great depth. So thanks for a good discussion. Yeah, thank you, Brett. This was so much fun uh, to walk through these, and I am going to be spending the rest of my evening uh, queuing some of these up on uh, iTunes and or YouTube. Sounds like a good plan. And thanks so much to Aaron Walls for coming on to talk about Epcot Essentials music. You may have been wondering why I didn't ask Aaron some of the common music and book-related questions. Well, that's because he's coming onto the podcast again for a few more episodes centered on Epcot Essentials. We'll be talking about books in a forthcoming episode, as well as the future of the park and what awaits. So definitely be sure to check out that content. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.